Hi there. Thank you for choosing to listen to this sermon. We pray that God would use this as an added resource to benefit you in conjunction with you belonging to a local church near you. This sermon was preached at Central Baptist Church, Pretoria. 130 years of believers loving God, caring for one another, and impacting the world. Well, welcome back to those who are streaming. And uh, we are going to turn again to Second Corinthians this morning and the fifth chapter. I do want to make a few comments before we read the section today. Maybe just to say and remind you that these were letters written to a local church. And when they received this letter, they would have not dealt with it in little portions like we do. It would have been read to them as a letter. And so there's continuity. And and so with us, week by week, we do a section, we move on to another section. It's quite difficult to follow that kind of train of thought, the continuity that comes in, in a letter. So just to be aware of that, so each message is kind of connected to last week's message and next week's message as we go along. But much of this letter is about Paul defending himself and his ministry. And we have already, and, and in this particular letter, we will see some more. We will continue to see the same theme coming up again and again. Uh, many of the topics, many of the matters that he raises, uh, gives us insight into how come he perseveres in ministry. What, what is it that keeps him going? Not giving up, not throwing in the towel. Just to give you two examples recently that we touched on. Back in chapter 4 and verse 1, he shared of the privilege of having the ministry of the mercy of God. Having this ministry. Great privilege he saw that he had and that kept him from losing heart. And then last week we considered how living in the present, even though we groan and life can be so difficult in the present, this life, however, can be so much more meaningful knowing, knowing the hope that there is beyond this life the reality of heaven and glory. Well, so today we move on to chapter 5, and, and it's, it's the same topic, it's the same theme with, with slightly different emphasis. But yeah, Paul is going to share some further insights into why he, and I would like to think us, can have a sturdy backbone. When it comes to ministry. And uh, there's a question that emerges from this passage that I want us to consider in the application of, of the uh, exegesis. And, and the question is, is this. Why do you do what you do in ministry? Let's think about that this morning. Are there are various things that people do uh, in and around the body of Christ, whether it be a hospitality ministry, whether it be missions, Lauren going off to Tajikistan, um, other uh, aspects of ministry in teaching or preaching or Sunday school. And, and I think it's important, we'll see from this passage, that we understand with clarity motive. What is it that moves us, that motivates us? And yes, it can be for wrong reasons. It, it can be because you just like to do what you do, or it could be that you're just good at what you do, or sometimes it's, it, it could be because you like to travel, or if, if, uh, or you, you feel coerced, your arm has been twisted to do something. 
Well, we're going to see today uh, how this passage uh, unfolds, why Paul does, why he and, and his co-workers do what they do. So from it's, uh, the passage is from verse 11, but I want to back up a little bit uh, to verse 9 of chapter 5. Follow with me uh, in your Bible. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about our outward, about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. If we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he has died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, for the sake, for their sake, he died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ God, uh, God counting, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Just so far, uh, the word of God. Lord, we do pray as we always do because it's an acknowledgement that this is not an exercise of human making. But Lord, your word today, your spirit at work through your instruments and Lord, us, each one of us, subjected to that which you have revealed, pray that your word would find entry, access into our hearts, and Lord, living lives of obedience in submission to the glory of your name. Amen. Well, I remind you again of that question, uh, changing it slightly. Why should you do what you do in ministry? That's going to be more the emphasis of this message this morning. But to answer that question correctly, there is some clarity that is required. The answers God gives through the apostle in this particular passage applies to those who, like Paul, are very clear about what a Christian is. Very important starting point. What, what actually is a Christian? And so the definition that Paul provides here, I believe, eliminates confusion. It uh, eliminates controversy as to who and what a real Christian is. And giving us insight, once we know what a Christian is, 
it then becomes central to our understanding as to why Paul and his co-workers do what they do and why they keep doing what they do in gospel ministry. So have a look at verse 17. He has a good definition of a Christian. Therefore, if anyone... Now it's important to pause on that word, anyone. It's not, therefore, if some people, not a few people, not some who live at one standard and others live and, and minister at another standard. If anyone, all of us included who claim to be believers, if anyone is in Christ, another pause. In other words, anyone whose life has experienced the miracle of the new birth, Something of being regenerated by the Spirit who's been born from above. So there's been an intervention. There's been a miracle of God's grace in bringing spiritual life. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. And, and that's what we need to be thinking about this morning. This new creation is like a branch in a vine... But, but the, the, the tree, the vine is in the soil. The, the, it's, it's organic. It, it's not just organizational. Uh, the old is past and, and the new has come. And, and New Year, if you're thinking, well, you know, am I really a new person? It's not used in the sense of becoming a different kind of person. At the moment of an individual's new birth, there's new life. That's the issue. There's spiritual life, spiritual vitality. The old is past, the new has come. Prior to Paul's conversion, he was a persecutor of Christians. That was what he did. That was the inclination of his heart. He was opposed to Christ. After his conversion, his new creation, he's still Paul. And we don't know what he looked like, but we think he was a short, stocky, struggling to see kind of guy. We think he stayed that. He continued to be that. But what he did and what motivated him to do what he did changed. So after becoming a Christian, and I've got four uh, points that flow from this. After becoming a Christian, Paul is governed by a new principle. If you have a swimming pool, many here today may have swimming pools. You have a swimming pool in your garden. I can't imagine that you would not make an effort to persuade any visitors with toddlers to keep a constant eye on their child. Am I right? Especially if you don't have a fence around your pool. You would be warning them. You'd be looking out for them. Why do we do that? We do that because the prospect of drowning compels you to do whatever you need to do to ensure the visiting toddler does not drown. A child drowning is an awful tragedy. I don't know if you've ever been exposed to that in the course of my life. I remember when I was a little boy, uh, family friends, their youngest child drowned. Terrible. Six years old. In the course of my ministry... I've been exposed to two different families where a child has drowned. Devastating consequences. Both those families, husbands and wives, split up 
It destroys. It's destructive. It's hard. We understand it's difficult. A child drowning is an awful tragedy. And so Paul here has come to see something far worse. He cannot imagine himself not persuading, actively persuading men and women to be ready for the prospect of appearing before God. Have a look at verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And so as we live our lives, we need to understand, and those around us, lifestyle choices matter. Because there is a day up ahead, Paul knows this, we ought to know it, it's spoken of frequently in the Bible, there will be a day up ahead when Jesus, and I'm just going to give you one example, will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Verse 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 8. And he will do so, we are told it is described in flaming fire. Inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. We need to absorb that. We need to see the seriousness of that. And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Verse 9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Away from the presence of the Lord. And from the glory of of his might. So can you see here, Paul has, 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 has come to uh, take on what I call a governing principle, knowing, knowing something of the fear of the Lord. Folk, no one is above God. No one, no one is out of the reach of God. Whether it be the love of God or the wrath of God, no one can avoid giving an account to God. God will always have the final say. And so Paul and his companions, they know, they know that men and women have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They know, they learned at Sunday school as we did, the wages of sin is death. They know that God is holy and just. They know that God must punish sin and disobedience. But the point is, they know that there's a way to escape the wrath of God. They know that Romans 6 verse 23, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there's danger, but there's rescue. There's safety. They know it because of the message of the gospel. And they know it because they themselves have experienced that there's safety from the punishment of eternal destruction. There's provision to avoid being cast away from the presence of the Lord. So can you see why it says in verse 11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Every believer ought to know, as Paul and his co-workers did, Something, we need to know something of the fear of God. Knowing that we cannot trifle, we cannot mess with God. Knowing our God is a consuming fire. I'm, I'm quoting scriptures here. Knowing that God will judge the living and the dead. And so, folk, my question this morning as I preach this word to myself, how then can we remain silent? We cannot. We cannot. How can we 
not do anything about warning people of the wrath to come. There is good news. We must persuade them, do everything we can for them to believe that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, Paul adds, and and, and I don't want to just pass this over, ministry and persuasion must be done with integrity. He had written about this in the previous chapter in the second verse, uh, telling them there we have renounced this graceful Underhanded ways, we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. He now reminds them, again, acting with integrity in ministry, nothing is hidden from God. And he, he appeals to the knowledge of Him, the acquaintance of Him. And he says in verse 11, what we are is known to God. Nothing hidden from God. And our hope is known also to your conscience. You see, He's aware of the critics. He's aware of the criticisms leveled against him. But he makes the point that whatever they do, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. And and so his answer is whatever we do, it's for the sake of God and for your benefit. That's the first point. That was a tough one. It's a hard point. But it's a true point. It's, 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 it's something we can't ignore. So as a new creation, Paul and his co-workers and members, friends of Central Baptist Church, those who are believers, ought to be governed in what we do in persuading others by the fear of God. Moving on secondly, because we have been, what I've called now this morning, arrested by a new motive. Something has gripped our hearts. Something ought to have gripped your heart. Do you know what happened to all the other disciples? I picked on one of them this morning, Andrew. The disciple Andrew also went about in ministry as an itinerant preacher. He moved around that area in the Middle East And uh, in the course of his ministry, the wife of the governor of Edessa became a Christian. She was converted to Christ through his preaching, through his ministry. Well, it made the governor mad. So mad that he threatened Andrew with death on a cross. This is what Andrew said to the governor. And I quote, And I feared the death of the cross... I should not have preached the majesty and gloriousness of the cross of Christ. Now there's more. Andrew is alleged to have hung on the cross, on a cross for three days before he died. During those three days, he taught and instructed those around him in the faith until his final breath. And, and, and I don't know the story historicity of this, but this is what I read. He even rebuked those who wanted to see him released. And the point is this. So great was his desire to to serve the Lord, even if it meant dying a martyr's death. Something had gripped his heart. So I asked myself, and I ask you this morning, why did Andrew, why have so many others have this kind of determination. 
You see, there is an answer given to us in this passage. Like Paul and the other apostles, hearts and minds had been gripped by the extraordinary love of Christ. Have a look at verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. And not just because of some airy-fairy notion, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You see, this song that we teach the children, Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so, must be interrogated. What does it mean that, that he loves us? Well, the, the, the truth is, the, the, the love of Christ is of such a nature that it becomes a controlling force. There's a constraining, there's a compulsion. And it, it holds us as believers. We, we, we can't just easily or, or superficially uh, move uh, without it. The fact of Jesus' death on the cross, folk, and, I'm, and theological terminology, penal substitutionary sacrifice for sinful people, resulting in benefits. Now, now you, we, we have to meditate and understand on who God is and who we are. God who is infinite and transcendent and had no beginning, the uncaused causer. God who created not only this world, but the universe and, and, and the cosmos and everything that exists. A God who is holy, a God who is personal, and we are dust. And yet he loves us. You, 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 there's a, that doesn't make sense. Doesn't, I mean, I, I, this last Monday, I spent a couple of, I don't know, not an hour maybe, pouring poison down termite holes. I don't like ants. They're insignificant. And they're creatures like I'm a creature. God considers us. And, and it's that principle that, that grabs hold. And not only does God love, but He Himself takes on flesh and, and dies the death, takes the punishment that was due to us. He knew that Paul knew the death of Christ was for multitudes of people who would know the forgiveness and inclusion into God's family. It's a difficult verse, verse 14, but let me give you a little summary of it. Jesus' death marked the death of us all. In what way? In that he died the death that they all should have died. The penalty was carried by him as he died in their place. And what's more, all this unfolding, all this intention from God happened before they ever thought of him, loved us while we were yet sinners. Paul and every new creature, new creation, described here then, how can you not want to serve God? How can you not tell others of this good news? Surely new creations cannot just plod along, going about their own business, unconcerned about what God has done, unconcerned about 
the spiritual or the eternal destiny of other people. No. What we've been given, we want to share. Well, Lauren, why do you go to Tajikistan, Lauren? I mean, you've shared with us this morning the people in need. I thought of this verse uh, right at the beginning of John's Gospel, the pattern uh, that I'm suggesting here this morning that I see. When Jesus found Philip, remember right at the beginning of the Gospel, he said to him, follow me. What was the first thing that Philip did? John chapter 1 verse 45. Philip found Nathanael. And he said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. There's an excitement. There's, there's an, a movement. There's a motivation compelled by the love of Christ with Jesus as number one to do what he wants them to do. And in fact, to quote another verse here, we'll... We did deal with this in an evening service not long ago. 1 Corinthians 6.19 Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Isn't that a wonderful thing? But it doesn't stop there. Whom you have from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And so there is a message here this morning. Since Jesus loved and died for sinners... How can we not share his concern for them and be committed to that? Well, all sorts of things change when you become a believer and someone who is a new creation. And there's a third point I I see from this passage. Another change that Paul underwent was that he was enlightened with a new perspective. So this new perspective has to do with the way that he saw people. I was driving back from the church on Friday from the Arcadia campus, dropped Isaac off, and I was driving back in the direction of Glen Haven, in fact, and there was a young boy standing at the robot, and uh, he looked terrible. He was physically handicapped, disfigured, and I had been reading my notes that morning, and suddenly I saw him differently. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I see people at the robot, they're a real annoyance and uh, wish they weren't there. Why don't you get a job? Suddenly I saw him differently, especially because I'd been looking at this passage this week. And notice what Paul says, and I'll clarify in a minute. Verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. In other words, we don't just look at people from outward appearance. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, which he did, superficially before, we regard him thus no longer. So, so the point is that we, we as Christians ought to see, we need to see people not superficially. He no longer saw the external appearance or physical nature as that which defined them as people. There's something more. You see, before him being a new creation, he missed who Jesus was. Didn't look beyond the superficial. But when he came to see who Jesus was on the, on the road to Damascus, immediately it's an acknowledgement, Lord. Now, application. With regard to people, when we see people, when we see each other, and we see someone who looks like a beggar, that guy that I saw on Friday, or we see somebody who's a millionaire, or somebody who's 
tall and too thin or somebody's short and too fat or, 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 or somebody who lives in uh, an upmarket suburb or, or uh, an informal settlement or uh, this culture or that, that culture or, or what I even thought of in application is people identify themselves as elite or criminal or LGBTQ or Muslim. What Paul is saying here Look beyond what you see on the surface. Look beyond. These are people made in the image of God who are fallen and in trouble, in danger. And my point is this. Paul came to see all people have the same need. No matter who they are, no matter who we are, the need of the rich and the poor, the black and the white, the foreign and the local, the alphabet community, all need and, and have to be reconciled to God. That's, that's the need. That's the need. To be in Christ, not having God counting their trespasses against them. And folk, none of us better than the other. All fallen. All fallen short of the glory of God. Not taking people at face value. Not reaching superficial conclusions about people. Especially regarding their standing with God. This leads me to my last point. New creations can do no other than, number four, be surrendered to a new objective. God had given Paul and his co-workers and us. We can have a meeting afterwards. Why do we do? Why why do we want to add to this building? Why do we want to send missionaries out into the world? Because God has given us a job to do. Verse 18. God gave us the ministry of reconciliation... Verse 19, God entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. God has made us instruments to meet the deepest and desperate need that people have in Pretoria and even to the ends of the world. And so Christians, new creations, are charged with a ministry and entrusted with a message Paul and his co-workers and us, our aim, our objective given to us by God is to see that men and women are reconciled to God. That's that's why we send missionaries out, but not just them. And, And so Paul concludes here in verse 20, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. There's another servant of God I thought I would illustrate uh, my point with. A man who unashamedly surrendered to being an ambassador for Christ, engaging in the ministry of reconciliation, Jonathan Edwards. Some of you would know Jonathan Edwards. Well, in one of his sermons, the sermon is entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He pleaded with the congregation to be reconciled to God. This is where he described in graphic terms the danger the people were in, the people are in, as we would see it. Oh, sinner, he says, consider the fearful danger you're in. It is a great furnace of wrath that you held over in the hand of that, you're held over in the hand of that God whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. 
You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it, ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder. Do you get the point? He, he, he got the seriousness of the danger. Little toddler falling into the pool. Now it's uncomfortable. We don't like to talk like this today. But then gets verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so the point is there is good news. The gospel of our Lord Jesus. Jesus who was sinless. It's crucial to our forgiveness. The gospel is the good news of the great exchange. The exchange that took place on the cross. Jesus took in our place the wrath of God. That which our sins deserve, so that in exchange we might receive the righteousness of God. And so, folk, I'm done. So, but just a conclusion. I started with the question why do you do what you do in ministry? I ask myself that question. Sometimes motives can be so skewed. Uh, in this passage, God. I believe has shown us, does show us, that we ought to be motivated as Christians, as, as those who are new creations. And I could have used this as an outline. I only thought of it as I was coming to the end of my message. My, my points could have been different. We should be motivated by the fear of God. We should be motivated by the love of Christ. We should be motivated by the need of people. And we should be motivated by the task that God has given us. And so I'm asking us as central this morning that we continue as those who are new creations. We are ambassadors of Christ. Where you teach in the Sunday school, where you teach a Bible study, where you go to Central Asia, where you go to Timbuktu, whether you stay in Pretoria, whether you work in corporate, whether you're at home at the retirement center, we are ambassadors of Christ. Understanding this, folk, listen to this, God making his appeal through us. It's not me, it's not you, but God using us as a channel. Imploring people. We implore you, Paul says, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Close with that scripture. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so, Lord, I do pray that the unusual working of your Spirit again, as I indicated earlier, would so enable us, opening the eyes of our heart, to grasp, to see, to understand more clearly something of the greatness of that which you have done in saving us from our sin. And, Lord, I pray that as a church going forward, having had a witness over these decades in the city, uh, Lord, really must not come to an end. We pray that you would continue in years ahead uh, to use this congregation, generation after generation, the sake of your name, being your ambassadors, Lord, you making an appeal through us. Lord, not only to our community, but we pray for our family, for our children, Lord, for parents, for siblings, those standing in need of this great free gift of salvation. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to this sermon. Find out more about Central Baptist Church at www.central.org.za.